Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. We've been working our way through a short series we've called Before the Throne. Throughout Israel's history, prophets reported glimpses, visions of the heavenly court. Those encounters were equal parts awe-inspiring and terror-inducing. We started with an entire episode on Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. That's where Isaiah records his prophetic call. But before that enigmatic call, he also records his encounter with the throne room of God. Seraphim attended, and they called back and forth to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Then, in the last episode, we looked at similar encounters with the presence of God from Moses to Ezekiel to Daniel. We also took a brief side trip into the descriptions others provided for the heavenly court, those who attended God and did his bidding. God is not alone. (laughs) Right. God is not alone. I think that's how you said it. Language that has God addressing others around him doesn't surprise us in Hebrew literature. It was expected that God would address a court of servants prepared to execute his will. Well, in this episode, we turn our attention to the New Testament. We get a surprisingly similar account of an encounter with God there in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. It's almost like the Old Testament informs the New. (laughs) Exactly. In fact, as we'll see, the author of Revelation sees himself in direct line with the Old Testament prophets. So one more encounter with the throne room of God, the last one we find in scripture. Let's go take a look. Ron, I suspect there are few books as bewildering to modern Christians as Revelation, the last book of the Bible. It is chock full of imagery that is completely alien to us. I suppose the next most bewildering book might be Daniel, but we're having to reach to the Old Testament for that. (laughs) Exactly. You and I both had the chance to teach this book. I explain to students often that you cannot make sense of Revelation unless you are also familiar with Daniel. And the challenge, of course, is that it's fairly difficult to make sense of Daniel, especially the last half. (laughs) True. Tell you what, why don't we start with the context of the book of Revelation? and then maybe a brief outline. And that way we've got our bearings before we jump into the specifics of chapters four and five, where the author records the vision we want to examine more closely. Sounds good. We don't know for sure when Revelation was written or by whom. (laughs) Ron, you sound exactly like an academic right now. (laughs) That's basically the way every New Testament scholar introduces the book they studied. The more you examine it, the less you know. (laughs) But doesn't Revelation tell us who wrote it? Like, oh, say, verse (laughs) 1? Yes. Yes, it does. Credit in the book goes to John. Isn't that the same person who wrote the gospel and letters of John? That is, in fact, the traditional account. The traditional account is that John, the youngest and longest lived of the apostles, is responsible for the gospel, the letters, and the book of Revelation. There are very clear connections between all those books, and they've collectively been known as the Johannine literature. But scholars these days tend to steer clear of identifying the same individual as the author of all those documents. I've got to wonder if this is excessive academic precision. (laughs) Some days I'm with you on that. However, if you visit the island of Patmos, where the book of Revelation says it was written, there is a monastery that is happy to show you the cave John lived in when the book was composed. (laughs) And that just serves to illustrate how hard it is sometimes to separate legend from reality. But yes, Revelation tells us it was written by John. 
we can refer to the author as John. Just to spare what shred of academic reputation I have left, please don't assume I'm insisting on the traditional account and implying that the same John wrote the gospel. Catch me off guard, though, and I'll probably tell you that's exactly what I think. In any case, what the book also makes clear is that it was written in a context of persecution. The author, John, is himself a victim of that. We know there were at least two periods of intense persecution in the first century. The first period occurred under Nero in the late 50s and early 60s. The second period was under an emperor named Domitian in the 80s and early 90s. Both have been suggested as candidates for the time when Revelation was written. Right. We get that hint of persecution in chapter 1 where John says he is on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Yes, tradition has it that he's exiled there, but the text itself doesn't quite say so much. However, there is an interesting twist here. Patmos is just off the west coast of Turkey and not far from the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus is where traditionally John had settled. Okay, well, he's there in Patmos, presumably in exile, Mm -hmm. and in the opening chapter of the book, he encounters the risen Jesus Christ. Or more specifically, one like a son of man, if you want to be pedantic. (laughs) Yep. Although my innate pedantry aside, it's a safe bet that figure there is supposed to be Jesus Christ. This by itself is an awesome vision, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. we're already seeing features that parallel the other visions we've looked at. In verse 17 of chapter 1, John says that once he saw this one like a son of man, he fell at his feet as though dead. Right from the start, we have that pervading sense of terror. Exactly. And Ron, lest it go by unnoticed, one like a son of man is a direct quotation of Daniel and a reference to a title that Jesus frequently applied to himself. Yes, it is. And just one of many direct references back to the Old Testament prophets. Yes. Once we get past the first chapter, we get two chapters of letters or proclamations to churches in Asia Minor. These are still packed with strange and difficult imagery, but we also get a hint of the character of each church, at least as John knew them. True, and there is an interesting feature of these addresses. Some of the churches are experiencing persecution, some are not. That suggests persecution during the first century was sporadic and localized. In other words, whether you were persecuted as a Christian or merely tolerated, depended a lot on where you were and how the local authorities tended to feel that year. Those letters are chapters 2 and 3, and then we get to the chapters we focus on in this episode, chapters 4 and 5. A door opens in heaven, and John is called to enter and witness what begins as a throne room scene, very much like what we've already seen in the Old Testament. That's right. We'll say more about that in a moment. First, though, What follows chapter 5, the rest of Revelation, chapters 6 to 22, are the core of the revelation John receives with a brief epilogue in the last chapter. We might say that is the baffling core. When John gets called up to heaven in chapter 4, the angel or messenger says John is going to see what must take place after this. That tempts people to take the rest of Revelation as a roadmap for subsequent history. That almost certainly is not what the book of Revelation is about, but that doesn't stop people from doing their best to make the map fit what they see or what they think is about to happen. Yeah, Ron, perhaps this is a good opportunity to pause and talk about the kind of literature Revelation is. 
We've said before that genre matters when you interpret scripture. You need to know that genre, and you need to know what ancient authors typically tried to achieve with that genre. When we're talking about Revelation, the genre is apocalypse. Apocalypse, just like the end of Daniel, right? Exactly. The end of Daniel is a good example of apocalypse, or at least what many scholars call proto-apocalypse as well. Oh, well, when people hear the word apocalypse, or especially apocalyptic, they think in terms of the end of the world. And the book of Revelation is specifically responsible for that, by the way. The chilling imagery in parts of Revelation evokes precisely that. However, apocalypse itself as a word is basically a direct transliteration of the Greek title of this last book of the New Testament. Revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. The word means revelation. God reveals something to human beings. It's only because the book of Revelation, the apocalypse everyone in the Western world knows, it's only because the revelation is so terrifying that our English word apocalypse comes to mean what it does. In any case, it's no accident this revelation basically begins at the throne room of God. Granted, the primary genre is apocalypse, but we've also talked about how this book is connected to prophecy. Yes, I think that's incredibly important. The author of Revelation sees himself as directly in line with the Old Testament prophets. That shows up explicitly in a couple of places. Verse 3 of chapter 1, John refers to the entire composition as prophecy. That happens again in the last chapter 22, where the messenger or angel addresses John and mentions your brothers, the prophets. But John, you mentioned the connection between Revelation and Daniel. That's just one connection to Old Testament prophecy. As much as this book is packed with strange imagery, it is just as packed with allusions to other Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah and Ezekiel. Nowhere is this clearer than chapters 4 and 5. Okay, then. You know I'll never miss an opportunity to point out how much the New Testament depends on the Old. (laughs) Let's go look at this encounter, starting with chapter 4 of Revelation. Chapter 4 of Revelation begins with a door opening in heaven. John is immediately invited to come up and see what must soon take place, as you mentioned, Ron. As we also pointed out, this isn't John's first encounter with heaven. He's already encountered the risen Jesus, but he was so overwhelmed by the experience that he fell on his face. John, I feel like that's important. In just about every encounter we examine in the Old Testament, at some point the prophet is overwhelmed by the terror of being in the presence of God, by the realization that we're not fit to be in the presence of the holiness and power of God. That comes sooner than later here in Revelation. Yeah, well, after being summoned, John doesn't say he ascended to heaven or somehow walked through the open door. He says he was in the spirit and immediately saw a throne. Right off the bat, we're in the throne room. Yes, indeed. And just like we've seen with the other encounters, John knows someone is sitting on the throne, but he is hard-pressed to describe the figure. He can only say the one seated there was like jasper and other precious stones. He even gets the rainbow in there, just like Ezekiel. Yes, exactly. More precisely, a rainbow that looks like an emerald. (laughs) Ron, you mentioned last time that Ezekiel's descriptions seemed almost like they were designed to be impossible to reproduce. John isn't far off from that in Revelation. Yeah, right. I have no idea how to draw that. (laughs) We do have some features we haven't seen before, too. The 24 elders on thrones 
around the central throne. A tradition suggests the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles, but nowhere does Revelation tell us directly. I notice, though, John, that once again, God is not alone. There are attendants. Yep, we've already got the heavenly court, and we get more, too. There's thunder and lightning, flaming torches, and something we haven't seen specifically yet, a crystal sea. But augmenting the divine court, we also get four creatures, and these look familiar. They have wings and eyes and faces, a different face for each creature, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a human, and one like an eagle. John, this is just like Ezekiel with one significant difference. In Ezekiel, each creature had four faces with those identities. Here, the creatures each have one face, but they are the exact same faces. Yes. So presumably, these are the cherubim associated with the throne of God throughout Scripture. Note, Ron, these are not your run-of-the-mill greeting card cherubs. (laughs) All right. It's hard to see that sort of thing invoking any form of terror. Exactly. I would not rate the biblical cherubs high on the cuteness scale by any stretch. (laughs) Here, though, we see them saying something very similar to the seraphim in Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's when the 24 elders join the worship and throw their crowns before the central throne. Casting down their golden crowns before the glassy sea. Right. John, I got to take a quick aside here. That hymn is familiar to most English-speaking Protestants. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Verse 2 of that hymn comes straight out of Revelation 4 here. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be, which is a direct allusion to the one who was and is and is to come. Verse 3 plays out the implications of the way these prophets tried to describe God. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. That hymn is just steeped in this tradition of a throne room scene. The words, incidentally, were written by an Anglican minister, Reginald Heber, or Hebert, in the early 19th century. He actually became Bishop of Calcutta late in his life. Unfortunately, he died relatively young after only three years there in Calcutta. The music most of us know is a tune that goes by the name Nicaea, also by an Anglican minister, John Dykes, in the middle of the 19th century. I think I said earlier that I worry that those who put these words to music often do not capture the grandeur, the terror, and the awe that should accompany them. Maybe Dykes doesn't either, but he sure came close. Okay, um, back to the text? Yes, (laughs) back to the text. Well, the chapter concludes with the hymn of those elders casting down their crowns. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. John, we've reached the end of chapter four, and Richard Balcom, a scholar with expertise in Revelation, has suggested that chapter four of Revelation could sit just as well in the Old Testament as the new. If we were to encounter it in the Old Testament, he suggests, there's nothing that would really give us pause. Would you agree with that? There are some things that don't have direct correlations in the Old Testament, the 24 elders, the glassy sea, the phrase, who was and is and is to come. But really, that sounds about right, Ron. This is solid Old Testament prophetic tradition and exactly what we've come to expect when a prophet encounters the presence of God.
Now, Ron, while I might grant that chapter 4 of Revelation could sit comfortably in the Old Testament, chapter 5 could not. (laughs) Granted, we get something totally new in chapter 5. The chapter opens with a quandary of sorts. The figure on the throne is holding a scroll with seven seals, and no one can open it. For some reason, this greatly distresses John, but one of the elders reassures him, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's the one who can open the scroll. This is clearly messianic language, lion of Judah, root of David. We're talking about the king of Israel here. Mm -hmm. That's what John hears. Right. What he sees when he looks, though, is something completely different. He sees a lamb that looks like it was slaughtered. John, this is a remarkable twist. The symbolism may be a bit alien to us, but it's fairly clear. The Messiah, the one Israel was waiting for, that king had come and he had won his victory, but it was won by sacrifice. The author of the letter of 1 John was emphatic that a core Christian assertion is that Jesus who died and was raised again is this long-awaited Messiah. In its own way, the book of Revelation is saying exactly the same thing. Well, not only is the lamb able to open the scroll, but he immediately becomes the center of adoration for the four creatures and the 24 elders. I'm sorry, the Nicene in me cannot resist. Notice how Jesus Christ immediately receives the same adoration that was initially directed towards God. This is just like Paul in Philippians, taking that passage from Isaiah and dropping Jesus into God's place. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. True. The hymn is now aimed directly at the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. John, am I mistaken, or was that exactly the hope expressed for ancient Israel? It is indeed. And at this point, the chorus of praise to the Lamb grows. Thousands of thousands of heavenly voices join the chorus. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And as the chapter concludes, the chorus grows to a crescendo as every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea join in. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know, we've already seen the holy, 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 like we saw in Isaiah. And we've talked about just one of the many ways that's been put to music. These two verses here were first the heavenly voices and then all creation worship the lamb and the one upon the throne, God, the son and God, the father for anyone who's missing the Trinitarian connections here. These two verses are the way Handel actually ends his oratorio, the Messiah. Ah, the piece that gives us the Hallelujah Chorus. Precisely. The Hallelujah Chorus concludes part two of the Messiah. These two verses conclude part three, and they are the last thing we hear. The chorus sings very slowly, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And then the pace increases dramatically and the chorus belts out to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. In fact, chapter five concludes here with the creature saying, amen, immediately following this chorus of all creation, doesn't it? That's right. Amen being an excellent Hebrew word. Okay, well, the Messiah ends exactly the same way. The final scene begins with the praise to the Father and the Son, those two verses. It relies on essentially the same words of the heavenly chorus and then the chorus of all creation and revelation. Then that scene concludes with the majestic series of amens that take the Messiah to its finish. 
From chapter 5 on, Revelation becomes increasingly difficult for modern readers to decipher. We have the seven seals, followed by the seven trumpets, followed by the notorious beasts, and then the seven bowls. It all gets understandably dizzying. Yeah, Ron, this seems to be where people like to puzzle out what the book is predicting. Yes, and that's probably a misuse of the genre. I'll save the fuller explanation for another time. For now, let it be enough to say that it's probably too much to assume all the events in say chapters 6 through 18, are actually chronological. There are some entertaining uses of the imagery here, though. Uh, One comes straight out of chapter 4. There's a Latin poem that aligns the four faces, human, lion, ox, and eagle, to the four Latin doctors or teachers of the church. Gregory is associated with the human face because of the perception he showed in describing human beings. Ambrose is the lion. He was known for going toe-to-toe with the emperor Theodosius because of some atrocities Theodosius allowed to happen. Jerome is the ox plotting or stomping through the translation of the Bible into Latin. And when you know some of the stories about Jerome, that's actually kind of funny. And Augustine gets to be the eagle soaring over it all. Okay, so there are some entertaining appropriations of the imagery in Revelation. Absolutely. And after you've spent time studying how Christians have relied on Revelation, you tend to be very wary of those who want to associate passages of Revelation with specific events, past, present, or future. However, there is one exception to this general rule. As we approach the end of Revelation, there is no doubt it narrates the end of all things. Yes, the enemies of God are finally defeated, and around chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth descend. And with it, a new Jerusalem. John, I've heard you talking about this before. Is this not where God is ultimately and permanently with his people? Exactly. From the time of the Garden of Eden, it was clear God intended to be with his creation. Things immediately went very wrong, but God always had a plan to recover that original closeness. We get hints of it when the presence of God inhabits the tabernacle at Sinai and later the temple in Jerusalem. For that matter, every prophetic glimpse of the throne room is a hint of what is ultimately going to happen. Isaiah hears it. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Jesus teaches us to pray it. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And here at the end of Revelation, it is graphically represented by the New Jerusalem. The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. That's right. Before it reads, death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Precisely. Ron, we've said it a hundred times. The narrative of all of Scripture is one where God repeatedly attempts to reestablish relationship with human beings with his lost creation. Even in the middle of the terrible separation that sin occasions, the prophets, including John, who wrote Revelation, got glimpses of God's glory in the throne room where God's will was always done. Here, at the end of Revelation, God completes what he had always intended to do and resides permanently with his people. The throne room is accessible to all. Sure, and God's authority is now recognized by all as well. God's will on earth as in heaven, now that heaven and earth are perfectly merged into one. God's glory fully present, fully experienced, and fully recognized in all the new heavens and earth.
John, this has been a short series, but I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. We've certainly covered a lot of important ground. God's intent all along was to be with God's people and for God's people to be, in a sense, God's own court in creation. The prophets who glimpsed the throne room were getting a peek at what God always intended. And they were terrified every time they did, yet they couldn't resist. This is where the story is so compelling. We are always drawn toward God, and simultaneously we are horrified when we find ourselves in God's presence. When we're honest, we know God is holy, and we long for that, but we know equally well that we are not. True. Well, Revelation punctuates the story by describing the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. By his sacrifice alone, he reconciles us to God, and he is ultimately worshipped side by side with God the Father on the throne. I suppose we really can't conclude without observing this. The hopes that ancient Israel had, the glimpses of God's presence her prophets described, they all come to completion in the person of Jesus Christ. At least that's what the author of Revelation would say. And once again, the New Testament makes no sense without the old. And I suppose the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the old. You got it. Absolutely no mistake about that. That will be a surprise to no one who has ever heard us present. <laughs> right. And with that, we need to bring this series to a close. And we do so without any prophetic word yet <laughs> about where we're headed next. You'll have to stay tuned. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. 